We're going to open our Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to start with two preliminary passages. Our main section is Matthew chapter 12, 22 through 37. We're talking about the kingdom of God is upon you. I want to show you a couple of parallel texts. So the first one is the book of Acts, the very last chapter, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. We're going to go to 28, Acts 28. All right, so let's turn there. And once you have it, we're going to stand to our feet if you're able and read together. So let me set the context for you. The Apostle Paul is in some form of house arrest, and he's being asked to explain his views. So dropping down to Acts 28, let's look at verse 21. They said to him, after he talks about the hope of Israel, they said to him, Acts 28, 21, we have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, they're talking to Paul, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are for concerning this sect, and they're talking now about Christianity, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. When they set a day for Paul, they came to him, 23, at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them uh, by solemnly testifying about, here's our theme, the kingdom of God, and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus, both from both the law of Moses and from the prophets, from morning until evening, my kind of preacher, all day long sermon. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. Now, Paul is going to quote Isaiah here, but for the sake of our time, skip all the way down to verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. You can have a seat. Father, as we consider the kingdom of God, and we're doing some introductory stuff here, but we're really gonna focus on Matthew chapter 12. But as we do, as we think about this topic, the kingdom of God is upon you. Jesus, you said that to a group of people who had just watched you exercise a demon, heal a man, And there's great symbolism in what you did as well, and a great debate, and probably one of the scariest warnings in all the Bible about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And it is our deep desire, Lord, as your people, to understand what the life of the Spirit is about, to understand the kingdom of God, because I believe they they go together. The life of the Spirit is in the kingdom of God, and we want to know what it is and how we extend it. And obviously, Paul was preaching it, Jesus preached it, so help us understand it, help us to apply it, give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church in this hour, because we want to be busy about your business, Father. So may your will be done as we both teach the word of God, and as we respond to it, may you be pleased. In Jesus' name, if you agree, would you say, amen. Amen. Now, one more verse before you go to Matthew is in Romans 14. It's the very next book to your right. Paul's going to define the kingdom of God in a different way. He's been dealing with uh, debatable matters in the chapter about uh, days of worship, menu. What really makes a Christian a Christian is not these peripheral issues. And then he says these words, 
Another just key kind of introductory verse, Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, we all want that, right? We all want righteousness. We all want peace. We all want joy. And it comes in the Holy Spirit, and it's connected to the kingdom of God. Now, if you're new to us, when I started the book of Matthew, I introduced the whole teaching as the gospel of the kingdom. And I'm gonna keep repeating a definition of the kingdom of God because I'm hoping that we all have it uh, well in our hearts. And here's what it is. The kingdom of God is God's rule over God's people wherever God's people may be. Geography is irrelevant. God's rule over God's people wherever God's people may be, whether in a church building in Corona, whether in the Sudan, whether hidden in an underground church in China, that's where the kingdom of God is. And the gospel of grace is not different from the kingdom of God. I pointed out Acts so you would see that what Paul was preaching all along was the kingdom of God. There are not two different gospels. There's not the gospel of grace that Paul preached in Ephesians and other places, and then the gospel of the kingdom. They are one and the same. Paul said, this is what I've been doing the whole time in the Roman world is making known the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? It's that Jesus is the king and that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 2, if you're taking notes, says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus says it in Matthew 4, 17. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So whatever the kingdom is or was or is, was commencing upon the arrival of John the Baptist and specifically in the arrival of the Messiah, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now we've talked about the kingdom of God and we've talked about that there is an aspect of an already not yet uh, aspect of the kingdom. The kingdom is now, obviously the kingdom is spread throughout the world. About a third of the uh, world's population professes a Christian faith. So that's significant, right? From 12 disciples in Galilee to, you know, billions of people now professing faith in Christ, not to mention the millions and billions over 2,000 years of church history. So we've been digging out this idea of the kingdom of God. And I've been trying to say to you that your Christian life is much more than a sinner's prayer. Your Christian life is much more than just making a single profession at a camp and then going about your business. Your Christian life is about Jesus being your king, which is a synonym for Lord. Jesus is the Lord of the church. He reigns in his people. And that's what the kingdom of God is about. And the benefits of the kingdom are peace and joy, love and the Holy Spirit. The, the benefits of the kingdom are the power of the spirit within the kingdom. The benefits of the kingdom are that we tell people there's a king who's ruling and reigning, seated at the right hand of the father. He's ruling now. Ultimately, every knee will bow. That's the not yet aspect. Every tongue will confess. But right now he does reign and he reigns in his people. And my question is, does he reign in you? And are you trying to extend the kingdom of God? Do you tell people there's a king named Jesus who came to die for your sin and rose for your justification? This is the good news of the gospel. And it's not two different gospels, it's one gospel. Jesus is the king who laid down his life. Now the king has been doing his work in the gospel of Matthew and he's been going around 
doing good, anointed by the Holy Spirit, Matthew chapter 12, if you turn there in your Bibles. And we're going to watch him do another miraculous healing, which is going to become uh, both, it's a real healing, but it's going to become symbolic. So let me uh, introduce the first verse to you. And this, if you're a note taker and you like to do headings, call this the miracle and its symbolism. The miracle and its symbolism. Verse 22 says, then, that's after a brief time of withdrawal from confrontation with the Pharisees, once again, it resumes. Then there was brought to Jesus a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb. All the modern translations, I think, say blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw. Now, Jesus, we saw kind of a summary verse last time we were together, and it says Jesus healed them all. And we have really no detail. And there's so many healings that Jesus did where the detail's not given. And many healings that Jesus did have uh, maybe no symbolism at all. But this particular healing, like many others, is what scholars would call parabolic or symbolic. What does that mean? Meaning the healing is real, but there's also a deeper picture. There's some symbolism that we need to see. Notice that the man brought to Jesus, and by the grace of God, somebody brought him to Jesus. So let's just pause here for a second before I move into the, the healing and the symbolism. Somebody brought a man who was blind and mute to Jesus. How else would he get there? And that is a beautifully gracious act to invite people to the Savior. So I just want to tell you, when I was driving here this morning, I was going, uh, let's see, that would be north on Lincoln, and I was kind of coming over the freeway, and I saw a woman there, and I have to say, and I, I'm not trying to be judgmental, but she looked like she was probably a woman of the night. And I looked at her, and she had a very serious look on her face, and she was walking. And I thought, you know, it would be easy for me to pass her by without another thought. And in typical Pastor Michael fashion, I had about a minute to get to our pre-service meeting, which I didn't make in time for those of you who were there, and you're not shocked. But anyway, I was at least close. But when I saw her, my heart broke. And I thought, how does the kingdom of God get to her? And if she showed up at our door, would we invite her in? Would we love her with the love of Jesus? Jesus reached out to prostitutes and tax collectors and broken people and lepers. And so then as I'm driving this morning, I see a, a homeless shelter with cardboard boxes and stuff. And I thought that's another person that Jesus would have extended the kingdom to. And then one of our... Uh, uh, safety team and uh, helps out in the courtyard said to me that Pastor Michael as you were saying things about demonic possession and this mute and blind man a man walked up and he was leaning on the wall outside here just as you were preaching that the speaker was uh, sending out your word into the neighborhood thank God and he said it was extra loud this morning and he said I saw the man and I started to approach him and when I said something to him he couldn't talk he was so intoxicated and you were talking about a man who couldn't speak and couldn't see. Turns out another brother went up to him and he speaks Spanish and he was sharing about how he had abused alcohol over the weekend and he was afraid to come onto the church grounds. There was a fear in him. So brothers and sisters, our faith, the kingdom of God needs to be extended. Amen? 
And I know you all have a heart for that. And I know that's really the overflow of your heart. But that's something that we were watching Jesus do. And in this case, someone desperate was brought to him. How could a man who was blind and couldn't talk cry out to God? How would he know about Jesus unless someone brought him to the king? And they did. And Jesus did in his normal fashion. He healed the man. But I want you to notice that the man was demon-possessed. And this brings up a whole host of questions for a modern listener, especially in the West. What is demon possession? And is it something that does happen today? And where does it happen? And why does it happen? And there's all kinds of questions about these topics. And I'll just say, if you had gone on a missions trip to a place of the world where the uh, occult is practiced or they do magic or they call on spirits, you, you might see a lot of darkness. And some of you grew up maybe with a relative or you grew up in a... Um, where you were exposed to some occultic dark stuff, or maybe you dabbled in it yourself. And you know that that power is very scary and very real. And our culture wants to mock it, but all their movies are about it. Amen? And they, they make them more and more fantastic in the special effects and the scary stuff. And, and people basically show up at the theater. And Dr. Martin, many years ago, who wrote The Kingdom of the Cult, said when the first Exorcist movie came out, he was in the theater, a big strapping guy comes in, you know, over six foot, built, sits down and says, okay, I'm here, now scare the hell out of me. Direct quote. It's like there's something in us that's fascinated by that dark side, but yet there's people that also mock it. Well, in first century Israel, whatever was going on there, there were a lot of people demonized. And Jesus came to set the captives free. And in this case, the demon, according to Mark's account, when the demon was cast out, that's when the man could see and speak. So in this case, the demon had caused a physical malady on the man. Now here's where we want to be really careful in our theology. We know we're in a fallen world and sickness does happen. People experience blindness. There are some people who are mute. There are, there are people who have a whole malady of issues and it's not always directly linked to something you did wrong, nor is it always directly linked to some sort of spirit. But when the devil has an opportunity, he loves to destroy mankind. Namely, to destroy the image of God in man, the imago Dei, if you will, and this is what he does. He wants to turn you into something unrecognizable as a human. That's why, remember the demonically possessed men at Gadara? No one even wanted to deal with him anymore. They cut themselves. They shrieked at night. It was an ugly scene. This man, uh, basically, if you want to describe his life as a house, Spurgeon says that the enemy had so essentially taken over the house that he stopped up the windows and close the door of the soul. And Spurgeon asked, how could one in this condition escape without the mercy of the Savior? What are we to do when we watch mankind in these kinds of desperate straits? And, and there are people all over the world in terrible conditions. And in some cases, apparently, there's a demonic influence. Let me just give you a parallel Text. This is Luke 13, 11 through 13. Just write it down. You don't have to turn there. There was a woman, behold, who for 18 years, says Luke, had a sickness caused by a spirit. Luke 13, 11. 
She was bent over double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands upon her and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. For you note takers, that's Luke 13, 11 through 13. Here's what's going on. Woman in the synagogue, she's bent over something like this for 18 years. A good buddy of mine said he heard a preacher say 18 equals 666. A spirit had put such a burden on her body that she couldn't even raise herself up. And she becomes a metaphor for what the other thing the devil wants to do, which is put all this weight on all of our shoulders, right? So that we can barely even move anymore. She represents uh, people under religious burdens and demonic burdens, and Jesus raises her up, makes her erect again, deals with the spiritual situation. Again, I want to reiterate, I want to be very careful. There's not a demon involved in every sick sickness. In fact, it may be pretty rare, but on certain occasions, a demonic influence can cause something like this, and indeed it had. And in this case, it had shut the man's eyes and shut his mouth. And let me just say to you that that's really what Satan wants for you. He wants to shut your eyes to the things of the Spirit, and he wants to shut your mouth so that you don't praise God, so that you don't speak the glory of his name, so that you... You know, have, have you ever seen some people that are so devastated by life or that so much damage has been done to them, they can't even speak anymore? You ever seen someone who's maybe a drug addict and they have weird twitches in their body? It, it's just a strange thing, but the enemy is on the prowl. Jesus came to kick down his door and set captives free, amen? And that's why I'm standing here today because the the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory, reached down into my mess and rescued me and washed me in his blood. That's a good time for a hallelujah right there. Thank you. That's the miracle. Now, what do you think the blindness and muteness is symbolic of in the man? Perhaps the nation, perhaps the religious leadership. How many times did Jesus say of them, they're blind guides leading the blind, right? They just won't see. They won't speak the glory of my name. The enemy, ironically enough, they're gonna accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan, and they're the ones who have had their eyes closed and their mouths shut. Irony is thick. That's, I believe that's the symbolism. And so that's the miracle. Here's the reaction. All the multitudes were amazed, as they often were at Jesus' ministry, and they began to say, this man, verse 23, cannot be the son of David. Now, that's a messianic uh, phrase or a term for the Messiah. Can he? The language, I think, originally is a little bit more positive. Can this be the Messiah? Or maybe we'd say it this way. How can he not be the Messiah? Look what he's doing. Left and right, up and down. Every time you turn around, someone's getting healed of things so radical, things we've never seen this kind of ministry before. And look what he does. We don't have any record of the man's response, but you could imagine he's probably jumping up and down. I can see, I can speak. His tongue has been loose. So many beautiful things that Matthew just kind of lets sit there. And they're saying, you know, how could this not be the Messiah? But second reaction, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, 
This man cast out demons only by Beelzebul. Now, Beelzebul is going to be defined right here in verse 24. Beelzebul was known as the ruler of the demons, the demon prince. And Jesus is going to equate Beelzebul with Satan. There is a Satan. There are demonic forces. Jesus Christ acknowledged it. He taught it. He delivered people from it. So if you want to dismiss it, I'll leave that up to you. But Jesus taught it, and it's real. Now, C.S. Lewis warned us about two extremes with demonic power. He said one extreme is to deny its reality. That's a mistake. The other extreme is to see a demon behind every corner, or in the old actor's phrase, the devil made me do it. And everything's the fault of the devil. I got a flat tire. The devil did it to my tire. Probably not. But at the same time, the truth is that the enemy is on the prowl. And he does work now, Ephesians 2, in the sons of disobedience. He's called the God of this age, the ruler of this world. Jesus called him that in John 12 and John 14. He's called the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4.4. The Bible is filled with this stuff. That there's a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. Whether you want to acknowledge that, I'll leave that to you. But that's what Jesus said and that's what the Bible teaches. But the Pharisees couldn't deny Jesus' power, so they had to attribute it to another source. There's no way you could deny what Jesus was doing. So you had to say, well, if it's not God's power, then whose power is it? You don't have a whole lot of options after that. France, the great commentator, said some such charge remained for some centuries a staple element in rabbinic Jewish polemics against Jesus. They called him a magician who by his black arts led Israel astray, close quote. In Jewish writings from the time that Jesus lived and moved upon the earth, even in the Talmud and other places, they call Jesus, not only do they say he's not the Messiah, but in certain Jewish circles, they say that he got his power from the black arts or the occult world. You need to know that because that's where some people still are at with Jesus. They would say, if there's any power at all that existed in him, it wasn't from God. It was from the devil. Now, Jesus is about to rebut that argument so powerfully that you'll, you'll have no, you, you don't even have to really think about it anymore. But I want you to see the irony of their own blindness. And there's a parallel verse in Mark. Just flip over one book to your right. I want you to see because here it talks about the scribes coming from Jerusalem with the same accusation, but they take it a little step further. Mark 3, 21, 22. Matthew, Mark so the next book to your right, Mark 3, 21 says, and when Jesus' own people heard of this, Mark 3, 21, they went out to take custody of him for they were saying he has lost his senses. And the scribes, Mark 3, 22, who came down from Jerusalem, so now here's the big wigs, the religious elite, were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul and he cast out the demons by the ruler or the prince of the demons. Now, the Pharisees said he's got the power of Satan working in his life. The scribes said he's possessed by Satan himself. Now, you want to talk about a, a vile, blasphemous 
charge against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Turn back to Matthew chapter 12. That's it right there. And the vile stuff that's said against the name of Jesus Christ on a daily basis is sickening and sad. But for the religious elite to call him demon-possessed is one of the most egregious, worst things I could ever think of. Amen? How offensive, how wrong, how dastardly. And I'll say this to you, taking these two verses together with the Pharisees and scribes and their accusation, I don't think they cooked it up in the moment. I think they planned this. You say, well, why would they plan that? Because they were trying to destroy him. And if they could destroy his credibility, that would be one way to destroy him. Ultimately, they're planning the cross. They want to kill him. But another way to destroy a person is to destroy their credibility or to begin to incite people with thoughts like, well, yeah, he has power, but the power source is in question. See what they're doing? This is blasphemy at the highest level. They were ascribing the power of heaven to the power of hell. They were calling what Isaiah says in Isaiah 5, I think it's verse 20, they were calling ultimate good evil and they were calling evil good. And they were gonna fall under the judgment of God. Can you see why Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70 now? Can you see why Jesus said to them, you're so blind, you gotta come up with ways to protect your, your little your little kingdom here because you just won't be open to the fact that I'm the Messiah. They called him Beelzebul. If you look at that name just for a moment, Beelzebul uh, may tie to the god Baal in the ancient world, but it literally does mean master of the house or ruler of the demons. And so um, if you listen to Christian radio or you've done your good share of reading on the topic of Satan and never done a study on his origins, Um, most orthodox scholars say that Satan is a fallen angel and that he's the ruler of kind of a rebellion of angels. But the Bible is not as dogmatic on this as we might think. We infer some things from Isaiah 14. We think Satan's being talked about there, Ezekiel 28. There's a little bit of debate there, but I, I hold the traditional view that he's a fallen angel who fell from his, uh, place of privilege because of pride. So that's a secondary issue. But here's Jesus's response in verse 25. And knowing their thoughts. So you move from the miracle, the response of the crowd and the Pharisees to now Jesus's rebuttal if you're doing headings here. Verses 25 through 27, the rebuttal. And knowing their thoughts, wow. He said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste And any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. Now, Jesus knew their thoughts. What thoughts did he know? And were they just thinking it? Because it seemed like the crowd said, he must be the Messiah. And the religious leadership said, no, he does this by the power of Beelzebul. And it seemed like there was a little bit of a back and forth. Did he need to read thoughts? Were they just muttering it among themselves? Or were the thoughts that he knew beyond their immediate accusation to, I know what you're planning. I know why you're saying what you're saying. He knows a thought before I think it, a word before I speak it, Psalm 139, right? Jesus is God. Whether he's gotten a word of wisdom from the Spirit or whatever, I'll let you decide. 
But he gives a principle in verse 25. Any kingdom, doesn't matter which one, divided against itself is laid waste. Any city, any house divided cannot stand. Could I include any government? We live in the United States of America. Across the pond is a place called the United Kingdom. But we are anything but united. And before we start saying, yeah, government, politics, yeah. I got another thing. I'm not sure the church is united. And when you say, well, how do you get united, though? I mean, what, what is it that unites a people? You could say, well... From the standpoint of a country, it's maybe patriotism. And what is patriotism? Well, it's a commitment to a document called the Constitution. Uh, okay, well, are we united around those things? I don't think so. The country seems to be split in half in the good old U.S. of A. How do we get back to being united and what will unite us? If there's not core values that unite us, what will unite us anymore? Why would we fight for something if we don't even believe in what it stands for? Something to think about. But we can talk about households. We can talk about churches. And Jesus just says, look, if, if a house is divided, a government, a church, a country, whatever you want to talk about, it will not stand. In fact, it will be laid waste if we forget who we are and what we stand for. And let's just talk about the church for a second. Why are we divided in the church? Well, we're supposed to be united about essential things, but the church has compromised in so many areas, it's hard to keep track of what's going on anymore. And this, like the constitution for our country, this is our constitution right here. Amen? So, Jesus says, if Satan casts out Satan, 26, he's divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? Jesus, using a logical argument, if you like logic, he's going to use a logical argument and basically say this. So, you're telling me that Satan takes over a house, closes the windows, shuts the door, dominates an individual, and then Satan goes to set that people free from one of his minions. Why would he do that? If you have already had control over a territory and your soldiers were, were there occupying it, would you go fight against your old, own soldiers? And oh, we're going to get them out of there. Why would you do that? You already hold the territory. That makes no sense. Why would Satan cast out Satan? He'd be fighting against himself. He'd be divided. But some of us need to look at some of our relationships and ask why we treat each other so terribly when we're supposed to be united as well. We're supposed to be one in our marriage. Why do we do some of the things that we do? But Jesus' argument is what logicians, those who study logic, call a reductio ad absurdum. Jesus reduces their argument to absurdity. He simply says, that's ridiculous. That makes no sense. I love the fact that Jesus used logic. By the way, Jesus is the most brilliant mind that ever walked the planet. Anybody who ever tangled with them, they went away with their tail between their legs. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and so Jesus says, look, that doesn't make sense. And if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Maybe they're literal sons, at least people in their community. Consequently, they shall be your judges. 
Now, according to my understanding of history, in the first century, Jewish exorcists went from town to town. And they would use whatever was at their, uh, whatever, whatever was within their ability or their knowledge, whether it be, you know, uh, an object or whatever, to try to free a person from demonic possession. In the book of Acts, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, and they were going around doing this, and they had heard about the success of Paul's ministry, that his headbands and his apron during work was being used to cause miracles, and it was causing all kinds of people to be delivered, and so they thought they tried it. They encounter this demon-possessed man, and they say, uh, by the Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out. And the demon responded, always inconvenient when that happens. He said, Paul, I know, and Jesus, I know, but who are you? <laughs> and the Bible says that the demon-possessed man beat the stuffings out of the seven sons of Sceva so that they ran out of the house bleeding and naked. One on seven, it was no match. He had demonic power. And he beat him up, and it was news at 11, seven sons of Sceva <laughs> running, running out of the house, bleeding, beat up by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. You better know the Jesus whom Paul preaches before you go using the name of Jesus, amen? But here's what Jesus is saying. If these guys have had any success at all, and they've delivered a person from demonic possession by the power of God, are you going to accuse them of using the power of Satan like you've accused me? Now, there is no record in any literature that any ancient exorcist even comes close to what Jesus did. The point Jesus is making is that if they even have an ounce of success, do you accuse them of delivering people by Satan's power? I don't think so. Another part of his logical argument that they target him unnecessarily. Luke 17, 20 and 21 reads this way. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, Jesus answered and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. When Jesus came, he demonstrated the power of the kingdom. When Jesus was getting ready to go back to heaven, you know what he said? Wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And on the day of Pentecost, what happened? The church received the power of the Holy Spirit. And now, within the kingdom of God, is the power of God, the life of the Spirit. Do you know about the life of the Spirit? Do you know who the Holy Spirit is? Do you know he lives inside of you when you get born again? So here's how it works. Once you become a Christian, your life is like a glass. Let me take a drink. And the Spirit of the living God seals you at the moment that you're born again. But the degree to which this glass is filled with the power of the Spirit is the degree to which you fill yourself with the things that God fills, simply put. What does he fill? Worship, the word of God, fellowship, doing good, the community of the saints. Maybe you can add more to your list. And every time that you get filled up, you're here at church this morning, so he's filling your cup. Each time you get filled up, it rises a little higher so that even your life can become just simply an overflow. You might not even recognize it at times, but just who you are in Christ is spilling over to all kinds of things. 
But if I take a bigger drink, some of you are down here because you don't sow to the things of the Spirit but a couple times a month when you show up at church. And if you do that, you'll have the Spirit because He's not leaving you. He sealed you. But you're going to be running on empty. How many of you want more power in your life? How many of you want more love in your life? How many of you want more of Him in your life? More power, more love, more of you in my life. You know how you get it? You sow to the things of the Spirit. You keep being filled with the Spirit. Corey Timboom, who hid, Nazi, the, hid uh, Jewish people from the Nazis, used to use this illustration. She, she, she would say something like this. This is a glove. This happens to be a golf glove, glove just in case you wondered. Sometimes it benefits me. Most times it does not. <laughs> now, if I said to you, do you think that this glove can grab and hold my Bible right now? How would you respond? Probably not. I mean, I can try, but I don't think it's going to work. Now, what if I do this? Do you think I, this glove can now grab my Bible? Why? What happened to the glove? Well, it's now filled with a hand that has not all ability, but it has a good amount of ability. It can do what the hand can do, right? And it, it would be like having a power tool for those of you who hear power tools and go, rrr, 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 power. But not plugging in the power tool and going, why isn't this sander working? I thought they said it was supposed to help. No, you got to plug it in. <laughs> and then it'll help you out. You're just making it harder for yourself. You ever had a computer problem and you call one of those experts in your circle of influence? Hey, this thing's blinking and acting up and... It spit at me. <laughs> and they say, hey, have you unplugged it and plugged it back in? You mean I waited on hold for 20 minutes for you to tell me that? Yes. Anyway, that's just a personal rant. <laughs> we'll move on. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. If the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I'm kicking down the door of the devil's house. And if you want to be on his side of the door, feel free. But there's no denying that in him the Gentiles will hope, and he's the Messiah. And they knew it. The finger of God, the power of God was on display. And Jesus says, how can anyone... Enter the strong man's house, look at 29, and carry off his property, unless he first binds the strong man. Here the strong man is Beelzebul or Satan. Then he will plunder his house. Jesus now moves to a second argument in more what we call parabolic form. As Jesus exercised demons from people, he was showing the power of the kingdom of God. And he's basically saying this. I am taking the spoils out of Satan's kingdom. All ground that he has taken, I'm taking back. If you want to write this down for your notes, go and read this later. Isaiah 49, 24 and 25. Isaiah 49, 24 and 25. Uses this image of the strong man. And it's this image where God says, the, the uh, oppressor has come like Assyria and Babylon, taken Israel captive. 
And when God goes to get his captive people, he plunders the spoils of war. He sets prisoners of war free. He opens the prison doors. These are all the images that Jesus is using. Basically, I'm setting people free. Don't you see it? Don't you want to experience that freedom? Remember Nicodemus? He, he came to Jesus by night. We know the signs that you do must be from God, right? At least there was one Pharisee that believed. And then, do you know that the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee? And he ends up believing. So not all the Pharisees were a lost cause. 1 John 3, 8 puts it this way. The Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. I'll tell you, he has done so many things in my life. So many layers of healing. So many levels of freedom. So much beautiful deliverance. That's what he does. And he's been binding the strong man and taking back the possessions that belong to God. This is what Jesus did. And then he says this, 30. He who is not with me is against me. You, man, you mean I can't be Sweden, spiritually speaking? I can't be neutral? I like a position of neutrality. I'm neither here nor there. You talk to people and you say, do you know the Lord? Well, I am spiritual. Okay, what does that mean? Well, whatever book Oprah is offering. <laughs> Yikes. You see, Jesus says in verse 30, if you're not with me, you're against me. And if you don't gather with me, and that's what he was, he was doing, he was gathering in the broken, the prisoners of war, if you will, then you scatter. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men. If you have an ESV, verse 31, every sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men. And all God's people said, thank you, Lord. Every sin is forgivable in Christ. Amen? Every sin I've ever committed. You mean adultery is forgivable? Yes. Murder is forgivable? Yes. You go down the list. It doesn't matter what you've done. You've lied. You've stolen. You've cheated. You've broken every commandment multiple times. And even if you haven't, you've lusted in your heart and you've hated in your heart. You're, you've broken the commandments. You're in trouble. I'm in trouble. However, every sin is forgivable in Christ Jesus. That's what Jesus said right there in verse 31. There's the good news. It doesn't matter what you've done. It was nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. This is not an excuse to sin, but this is a declaration that if you're in Christ, you're a forgiven person. God is no longer counting your sins against you in Christ. I mean, hallelujah. Because I'll tell you what, if he kept a record of my sins, I'd be dust. But he's so good and I wanted to give you the good news before I give you the scary news. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, that's Jesus, it shall be forgiven him, thank God. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, notice, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or the age to come. And most would say the age to come is the kingdom age or what's ahead of us in the resurrection. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Go, go on a 
Bible Q&A website and see how many times people have asked, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? How do you commit it? Did I commit it? What do I do if I did commit it? And many tender souls have lost sleep over this. A word popped into my mind. Oh no, I'm condemned forever. Well, I don't want to make light of it because some of you have been there and you've thought, I committed it, that's it, I'm done. No forgiveness for me. No, that's not what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. In fact, some scholars believe that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is only limited to this historic moment because the Pharisees know who Jesus is and they attribute his power to Satan. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And there are even books you can read on this where some would say that Jesus's words don't mean that they're entrenched in the sin. He's warning them that they're on the verge if they don't repent. So I just say this to you. If you are worried that you committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or you have any doubt in your mind, you haven't committed it because you would have no tenderness to be worried about it. You'd be accusing Jesus of being from the dark side. You with me? You haven't committed it. I think we can say that authoritatively. But what it would look like is to look at the facts of Jesus right in front of your face and despite that, still blaspheme his holy name, still attribute his power to the evil one. That is the most vile blasphemy of all. And it's a chilling warning because it says there's no forgiveness in this age or the age to come. Just a thought. Does that mean that some sins will be forgiven in the age to come? Is that implied? And what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> but I, I'll tell you this. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to decide. And what a great privilege these people had to see the Messiah, you know, front and center, uh, right before them. So I'll just say to you that I think it may well be that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is limited to this historical moment. But I will say this, and I'll, I'll leave it after this, that the rejection of Jesus Christ will get you condemned because the Holy Spirit came to bear witness to him and convince the world of sin, righteousness, remember, and justice or judgment. So here's... The, the last part of this, and this is where I think Jesus is calling for repentance. Look at verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree, and he said this in chapter seven, is known by its fruit. A rotten tree can't produce good fruit. So what do you do if you're a bad tree? You need to become a new tree. <laughs> You need to become God's tree. You need to be connected to the vine because the vine can't produce fruit or the branches can't produce fruit without the vine. You gotta be connected. If you're not connected, you're a dead branch. You can't produce fruit. Cut a piece off of your apple tree and it ain't producing any more fruit. Why? It's not connected. There's no life. No life of the spirit. And then Jesus, in extremely politically correct language, says, you brood of vipers. How can you being evil, you might say, you den of snakes, 
How can you being evil speak of what is good for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart? Some years ago, uh, I mentioned Dr. Martin a lot. He, Dr. Walter Martin was one of my heroes when I was a newer Christian. He wrote the book, The Kingdom of the Colts, and he was on the TVN broadcast many years ago with Paul and Jan Crouch. She had big hair, and he was the founding guy on TBN. And there's, there's some good stuff on TBN today, but, but be careful. There's some kooky stuff on there too. And it, I think it's gotten a little better. But anyway, so they're, they're interviewing Dr. Martin and, they, and she says, now, Dr. Martin, no one can gainsay the work you've done in apologetics. You've done just a wonderful job, but I just have one constructive criticism. Now, Dr. Martin was a very serious, like, debater. And he goes, what is it? And she said, I wish that you could just smile more. And he said, okay, listen to it, you generation of slimy snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? <laughs> and, he, and he did it with a smile. I don't, I don't think she was thrilled about that. But the point is this, that Jesus was gracious and nice, but when he saw a snake, he called it for what it was. And he said, you are a brood of vipers and your mouth is speaking what's in your heart. Your mouth will give you away. Spurgeon put it well when he said, that which is in the well comes up in the bucket, close quote. Amen? You're like, what's a well? Oh, that's a place where they used to put water. Anyway, never mind. Whatever's in the well comes up in the bucket. So have you ever seen someone from a distance and you didn't really ever talk to them before and then they open their mouth and you're like, whoa. <laughs> now, sometimes you're unpleasantly surprised and sometimes you're pleasantly surprised. Like someone might not look so together and they're extremely gracious and articulate. Your mouth shows what's in your heart. And Jesus is basically saying, if you're accusing me of being possessed, you better search your hearts. The good man, 35, out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. Think of the heart. The evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And I say to you, final two verses, that every careless word that men shall speak they shall render account for in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. Have a nice day. <laughs> Just kidding. Little explanation. You're like, please, Pastor Michael, explain. Does this mean all the banter I've done with my buddies is considered in the careless realm category, and I'm going to answer for on the day of judgment. So uh, for many decades, I've played a lot of competitive racquetball uh, down at LA Fitness and some other places, and I met a guy, and his name is uh, Richard, and uh, he was a rodeo guy, and he was a boxer, and he won some sort of award on ESPN for, and when, when I first, for ro rodeo, when I first met him, he was 59, built like Jack LaLanne. This guy's just a stud. And so he, when we were, we have nicknames for each other and he used to call me Kid Mike the Preacher Boy. <laughs> that was my boxing name. Now in this corner, about to enter the racquetball court, Kid Mike the Preacher Boy. <sighs> 
And he said, boy, you're a nice guy outside the court, but once you get in there, it's all over, you know. Competition brings that out. So I'd be in the racquetball court, and, I'd, and it was my fishing pond, and I witnessed to a lot of the people, and they knew I was the, the group pastor. And they would sometimes use a not-so-nice word in the racquetball court. You know what I'm saying? A careless word. And then they would realize I'm in there, and they would say, oh, Pastor Michael, I'm sorry. I, uh, excuse my French. And I would say, I didn't know that was French, but, uh, you know. And I would say, you may kiss my ring if you want absolution. Get down on one knee, and then I'd throw water from my gym bag on them, and they'd say, it burns, it burns. And, sorry. <laughs> I'd play it up a little bit, because you just have to, you know. It's an opportunity. <laughs> Here's the main point. I don't think Jesus is talking about joking with our friends or banter. I hope not, right? But here's what he is saying. Every time you've spoken a thoughtless word, you've made a false vow. You took the name of the Lord in vain. You condemned a person with your mouth. You spoke rumors about them. You ran them down. Every time you've done that kind of stuff, you're gonna give an account for on the day of judgment. And this is courtroom language. And all God's people said, what? But here's the really good news. And we just read it. Every sin that you've ever committed with your mouth is forgiven. Thank God. Things you muttered on the 91 freeway. <laughs> forgiven. That stupid thing that you said in a fight with your spouse just because you were in the flesh and you wanted to take it back with everything you could, but you can't. Forgiven. If you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, I got some sobering words for you. You're gonna give, give an account according to Jesus for every careless word you've spoken. And I'll tell you what. That alone makes me tremble. But if you're in Christ, you're a new creation and you're forgiven. So what do we do? Well, maybe you're listening right now and you're not sure you're in Christ. Here's what the Bible says. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, Romans 10, 9, and 10, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Here's the explanation of verse 9. For with the heart... Man believes resulting in righteousness. He's made right with God. He gets the righteousness of Christ. And with his mouth, he confesses resulting in salvation. Would you pray with me? Father, I know the room is filled with many believers rejoicing in forgiveness in Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel of the kingdom, the king paid our ransom died on that terrible cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, reigns at the right hand of the Father. And, and because of that, Lord, and because you sent your gracious Holy Spirit to your people, I mean, we're, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And we know nothing separating us from your love, not our mistakes, not the enemy, nothing. You've taken us to yourself, and we're so grateful. Our position in Christ is safe, we're born again, we belong to you, we're forgiven, and we're grateful. But perhaps there are some who have been in church a long time and 
don't know the king personally, don't know the power of the kingdom, and maybe you're, you're listening to the sound of my voice right now and you're really searching your heart because you're not sure that you're born again of the Holy Spirit. Well, the good news is that you can right now believe and confess. And so would you just bow your, your heart? And it's, there's no perfect words here, but it, it is something like this. Lord Jesus, King of the universe, I repent of my sin. I thank you that you died on that terrible cross for me. Pray it if it's you. I believe in your resurrection and I believe in who you are, what you did, how you lived, how you died. I believe you're the king and I'm asking for your forgiveness and that you would bring me into your kingdom and into your family. Just that simple. Let me be born anew of your Holy Spirit. Maybe you're a person who's just feeling really parched and you're like, man, I need a time of refreshing from the Spirit of God. I need to get back to the life of the Spirit. Praise God, what a good desire. Maybe you would do a little business with your king. And Father, for this precious church, we cry for more love, more power, more of you in our life. And we know that that's gonna really be largely up to what we decide to do this week. So help us draw near to you and you will draw near to us. Help us, Lord, with all of our distractions. It doesn't mean we can't relax or watch a show or enjoy other stuff. It just means we've got to find regular times to get filled up. Help us be better at that. Help me be better at that, Lord. Because you promise you give the spirit without measure. You're so good. And right now, I just pray for a fresh outpouring of your spirit upon your gracious people, Lord. Bless them, fill them, strengthen them. Give them a great week walking in the power of the Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. If you agree, would you say? Amen. Let's stand.